Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a really fascinating topic um, historically for our understanding of one of America's greatest statesmen, Abraham Lincoln, for our understanding of the 19th century, the Civil War, and the place of African Americans in American life. We're talking about Abraham Lincoln's relationship with Black Americans. It's been the subject of a lot of uh, scholarly and public discussion, dispute, argument, uh, and to help us understand the conversation and the issues that are at stake, we're joined today by Professor Jonathan White. Uh, Jonathan is a professor at Christopher Newport University in Virginia. He is um, a terrific scholar and teacher and real expert on the 19th century. He is um, a prolific author, um, a number of really great books. I want to highlight at least a couple of them we'll be talking about today. One is entitled, To Address You as My Friend, African Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln, um, and another one most recently out called A House Built by Slaves, talking about the White House. And of course, the uh, to address you as my friend Jonathan, am I right? It was has been nominated for a very important prize. Yeah, well, uh, so to address you as my friend won an award for from the American Library. Oh gosh, American Library Association or some subsidiary of it. But then a house built by slaves was co-winner of this year's Lincoln Prize, the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize. Ah, I shared it with John Meacham for his and there was light. Yeah, and I have to tell our listeners, those who don't know, uh, many of you would, the Gilder Lehrman Prize is one of the most important prizes in American history scholarship. So congratulations, Jonathan, on that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I've neglected to mention, but uh, Jonathan received his BA from Penn State University and his MA and PhD from the University of Maryland. Um, Jonathan, Lincoln's relationship with African Americans, with Black Americans. Um, I, I, to my mind, as a person who knows a little bit about it, but is more of a casual, uh, has a casual understanding of this topic, I, I've heard two different things. One is, and Lincoln's enemies sometimes said this during his day, he's like Parson Lovejoy, as they called him, a, a lover of the black man who wants immediate, absolute emancipation and full social equality with the whites. That was something you heard more in Lincoln's day, of course. He's a radical. Some things you heard now, perhaps more recently, is Lincoln was no friend of the black man. Right. Those are the two polls that I've heard. Your scholarship on Lincoln, and especially both of these most recent books, what conclusions are you coming to? Yeah, it's always fascinating to see how people characterize Lincoln, because they're so so often the views that others have on Lincoln are diametrically opposed to each other. 
In my books, what I try to do are trace a couple of things. So I try to trace Lincoln's views of African-Americans, his views of slavery and emancipation over time, going back to his youth and then up through his presidency. But then I also try to look at how did African-Americans view Lincoln? Because today, I think there's a lot of suspicion among African-Americans about Lincoln himself. And I use the word suspicion on purpose because that's a word that Black uh, attendees at some of my lectures have used when they've come up to me afterwards and they said, thank you so much for my for your talk. It was really interesting. I learned a lot from it. I've always been a bit suspicious of Lincoln. And my my talk tries my talks and my books, they try to recapture how did African Americans view Lincoln and interact with him. So on the questions of race and slavery, Lincoln always believed slavery was wrong. He believed that from a young age. As an adult, he said, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember a time when I did not so think and feel. I mean, for him, think and feel in his mind and in his heart, he knew slavery was wrong. At the same time, he did not push for full racial equality as a young man. The, his views on, I think, racial equality would, would change a bit during the Civil War. Uh, early on, while he would fight against slavery and take positions against slavery, he did not support Black voting rights. In fact, as a young man, he had opposed Black voting rights. But by the end of his life, his experiences during the Civil War, and I think especially his experiences interacting with Black men and women on a personal level during his presidency, really pushed him in different directions so that by the time you get to the end of his life, his last public speech that he gives on April 11th, 1865, he publicly calls for black men to have the right to vote. And in the audience that night was John Wilkes Booth, who said that means N-word citizenship. That'll be the last speech he ever gives. And so um, I think that my research has been, has entered into this sort of conversation by showing how uh, how Lincoln's views changed over time and also how important they were in that moment when he lived. What about, let, let's, the, the other side of that coin, which is African-Americans' views of Lincoln. Mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming, of course, before he becomes president, he's not terribly well-known. He's certainly not a famous abolitionist like William Lloyd Garrison. Um, so I'm probably African-Americans, before the time he becomes president, don't have a view of Abraham Lincoln. Um, Tell us a little bit about African-American views, maybe when he becomes president and in the early years of the war. I think most African-Americans, and there's no way to know this for certain because there were no public opinion polls at the time, but I think most African-Americans were supportive of Lincoln when they saw him as a Republican getting elected. And I, th I think that's true because you would have had enslaved African-Americans in the South who are hearing their owners and white Americans around them complaining about Lincoln. So I think they had to know if if my master is so upset about this Republican getting elected, then he must be good for me if he's bad for my master. And I think that many black Northerners also saw hope in the election of a of a Republican president. Some of the evidence for this would be that as soon as Lincoln is elected, there are there are slaves in the South who begin running away. They believe that the ascendance of a Republican president 
and the beginning of the Civil War in the spring of 1861 mean that slavery is, is coming to an end. And they're a little premature in that hope, of course. Now, that said, Lincoln did have his Black critics. So there was a Black abolitionist in Illinois named H. Ford Douglas, who was extraordinarily critical of Lincoln. In 1858, when Lincoln was running for the U.S. Senate, Ford Douglas went to Lincoln and said, will you sign this petition calling for an end of the black laws in Illinois? So in Illinois, there were black laws that made it illegal for African-Americans to vote, to serve on juries, to testify against white Americans, and in fact, even for free black people to move into the state of Illinois. And Ford Douglas asked Lincoln to sign a petition calling for the end of those kind of laws, and Lincoln refused. And Lincoln refused because he knew that politically he could never win statewide election in Illinois if he signed on to laws like that. Ford Douglas was so furious about this that when Lincoln ran for president in 1860, H. Ford Douglas gave a speech essentially saying Lincoln is as bad as any slave owner in the South, maybe worse. Another one of Lincoln's great black critics at the beginning of the war was Frederick Douglass. And I don't think that Ford Douglass and Frederick Douglass had any relation other than their last name was the same and they both were angry at Lincoln in 1860 and 61. When Lincoln was inaugurated in 1861, he talked about how he didn't believe he had a constitutional right to end slavery in the South, that the white South had nothing to worry about in that regard, and that Lincoln would enforce the Fugitive Slave Act because it was the law of the land. And as president, he didn't get to pick and choose what laws he would enforce. He had to execute the law. And when Frederick Douglass read Lincoln's speech in the newspapers, he was furious. He called Lincoln the South's greatest slave hound and abolitionism's worst enemy. He said that the South had no reason to secede because Lincoln wasn't going to do anything to hurt them. Now, a lot of people today like to hold up these two Douglases as sort of exemplary of Black views of Lincoln or of a widespread Black view of Lincoln in the beginning of the war. I don't think that they are representative of how most African Americans viewed Lincoln at the beginning of the Civil War. I think they're kind of outliers, but they were very important vocal outliers. Frederick Douglass's views of Lincoln change over time, though, and we can talk about this uh, throughout the course of our conversation. Frederick Douglass meets Lincoln three times during the Civil War, and those personal interactions change Lincoln, and they also change Frederick Douglass. And so by the time Lincoln is, is assassinated in 1865, Douglass would go out publicly and say that Lincoln was emphatically the Black man's president. That was not a view Douglas would have had in 1861, but by June of 1865, he sees Lincoln personally. He sees the depth of Lincoln's conviction that slavery is wrong and needs to be destroyed. And Douglas comes to have a great affection and admiration for Lincoln. Let's talk a little bit about Lincoln's views on race and on African-Americans. And you said they changed over time. Um, he said he, as you said, he was always opposed to slavery, always believed it was morally wrong. Um, uh, some people have even uh, attributed that opinion of his to his work for his father um, mm -hmm. and experiencing the, his him working and his father taking the, the, the fruits of his labor. Um, did Lincoln share the prejudices of the ordinary white person in Illinois as he was growing up and early in his political career? It's a great question. The reality is the evidence is very very thin 
on Lincoln's early life, how he was interacting with African-Americans. And what we know is that Lincoln was surrounded by Black Americans in Springfield, Illinois. He had some Black law clients and litigants and cases he dealt with. His barber was a Haitian immigrant who he did law work for and was apparently on fairly friendly terms with a guy named William Fleurville. Lincoln had Black servants in his home who worked for him at different times, and and he knew Black people in his neighborhood, some of whom were part of the Underground Railroad. At the same time, he is not an abolitionist, as you said. He is not for immediate ending of slavery, and he is not an advocate for full political and social equality. And he says essentially as much in the Lincoln-Douglas debates and in other speeches. That said, Lincoln, I think, was ahead of his time, ahead of the vast majority of the population in Illinois in the 1850s. And some of the evidence I love to point to is the speech he gives in June of 1857 in response to the Dred Scott decision. And he talks about the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. And he says that when Jefferson wrote the those words, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, he said those words had nothing to do with declaring independence in 1776. They, they just weren't needed in 1776. But Lincoln says that they set up a standard maxim for a free society that you would constantly reach for and constantly try to get closer to. And in explaining this to this white male audience in Springfield, Illinois in 1857, twice in the speech, Lincoln uses hypothetical black women to say, even she deserves the right to eat the bread that she earns by the sweat of her labor. And even she deserves the right that are articulated in the Declaration of Independence. And it's a pretty remarkable thing for Lincoln to say, because if you were to think about Illinois in the 1850s, this is a state that white men see as for themselves. Again, I mentioned a minute ago some of the Black laws that were in place. So not only are African Americans excluded from political and social rights, but women are excluded from political rights and social equality. And so a black woman would be the lowest of the low in society. And yet Lincoln holds out black women as people who deserve the rights embodied in the declaration. And I think it's a pretty remarkable thing. So on the one hand, Lincoln's not out there stumping for black political rights and social equality. He won't sign H4 Douglas's petition in 1858. On the other hand, He's giving speeches where he's pushing his audience to think about the implication of our nation was founded on certain principles and we're not living up to them. And they should apply, in Lincoln's words, to all people of all colors everywhere. So what happens when Lincoln starts becoming president? You said the war started to change him or he started changing during the war. What happens to help drive that change in Lincoln's thinking? Well, one of the things we have to realize is that, you know, as college professors, we have office hours and anyone who wants to can come to our office and talk to us about their grades or whatever's going on in the 19th century. And, and, and talk sometimes means complain. That is true. Well, I've never gotten any complaints. I don't, I don't know. No. Um, in the 19th century, presidents held office hours, too. 
And anyone who wanted to could go to the White House early in the morning, wait in a long line, and eventually get in and talk to Lincoln about what was ever whatever was on their minds. And for the first year of the war, only white Americans take advantage of that privilege. But as early as April of 1862, black men begin taking advantage of that privilege as well. And then over the course of the war, black women will as well. And they go in and meet with Lincoln and talk about politics. They talk about equality. They talk about the right to vote. They go in to thank him and give him gifts and say, thank you for emancipation. I mean, whatever was on their minds, they would go in and talk to Lincoln about. And in my book, A House Built by Slaves, I, I document as many of these meetings as I could find. And I show how there was a, a real give and take between Lincoln and his Black visitors. They go in and they push him on issues, and he listens in all but one case. He listens and responds, and they listen and respond, and there's a give and take. And in some cases, it leads to a very real change in his public policy. And in some cases, I think even changing his mind about particular issues. The right to vote, I think, is one of the most important, where, again, as a young man in the 1830s and 1840s, Lincoln had mocked the idea of Black men voting. In, 1857, in the 1850s, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he says he's not in favor of, or he's never been in favor of Black political equality. By 1863-64, he begins working behind the scenes to push for Black voting rights, and then 1865, he comes out publicly in favor of it in a, in a speech that gets reported widely in the newspapers. And I think that that change in his approach was in large measure because of personal interactions he had with Black visitors who came to his office hours and talked to him, and he was willing to listen, which I think presidents before him and many after would not have been willing to listen. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because I wonder if, I suspect that's probably the first time that a president having office hours entertained Black citizens or Black voters or Black visitors. Yeah, I, I did as much searching as I could find in the years from John Adams until through James Buchanan for the White House years. And what I argue in the beginning of the book is that Black people were more likely to be bought and sold by a sitting president than to be welcomed as his guests. So James K. Polk sold or bought or sold at least 19 people as he was president from the White House. I couldn't even find a half dozen visitor, black visitors to the White House. We know that James Madison met with one, a, man, a very elite, prominent black man who was a, a merchant in New England during the War of 1812. We know of another case where there was a, a disaster in the 1840s. Um, a ship was taken out on the Potomac River called the Princeton, and it exploded and killed a bunch of members of the president's cabinet. And a, and a black servant as well. And afterwards, there was a funeral for the black servant in the White House. And a black minister came to the White House and met the president then. And President Tyler did not treat him well. And then that same black visitor came back and met Lincoln in April of 1862. And he later remarked on how different it was between how Tyler treated him and how Lincoln treated him, that Lincoln welcomed him, shook his hand, talked to him for 45 minutes, whereas Tyler was very condescending. So there were a few black visitors, not many, though. The title, To Address You as My Friend. Um... Tell us where that comes from. Is that is that part of the, the it, it feels warm. It sounds warm. 
Um, tell us where you got that title from. That So to address you as my friend consists of 125 letters from black men and women to Lincoln. About 100 of them are from men, about 20 are from women, and they come from people all over the country, north and south, some who had been born free, some who had been born into slavery, and they write to Lincoln about every aspect of their lives. And there's a couple of things that really jumped out at me in collecting and transcribing and editing these letters. But one of the things that really stood out is that many Black Americans in writing to Lincoln felt like they had a personal connection to him. And a number of them write to him as a friend. Some of them, things are going really badly in their lives. They have nowhere left to turn. And so where do they look? They look to the president. And some of those letters will say, I'm friendless. In other words, no one at home will help me. Will you be my friend? Will you be my advocate? And the title itself, to address you as my friend, is an exact quote out of one of the letters. And it captures this relationship that developed between African-Americans and Abraham Lincoln during that five-year, four-and-a-half-year period of his presidency. And when Lincoln died, one of the things that was recorded all over the country by white people who heard it said by black people was, we have lost our best friend. And so I chose that as the title because I thought it really captured this sense of how African-Americans viewed Lincoln during the war. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi. This is John Moser, Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. To, to me, when I think about both sides of that coin, Lincoln's views of African-Americans and their views of him, to me, it, crystal, it could be crystallized in a, a number of issues, as you pointed out. But one in particular, I'm thinking of the raising of black troops mm -hmm. during the Civil War and the wonderful movie Glory of the 54th Massachusetts um, Regiment. Tell us about that particular issue, because I know it was an incredibly important issue, both for Lincoln, but also for African-Americans. Yeah. So Black people begin volunteering to the Lincoln administration in April of 1861. One of the first letters in to address you as my friend is a Black man from New York City named Levin Tillman, uh, who writes to Lincoln and says, if you want Black soldiers, here's my address, let me know. And the Lincoln administration says, no, they, this is a white man's war. This is not a war about slavery. This is a war about union. It's about showing that democracy can survive. We're not interested in black soldiers. In May of 1862, 
a slave in South Carolina named Robert Smalls stole a ship, uh, the Confederate ship, the Planter, in Charleston Harbor, sailed it through great danger to the Union blockading vessels in the Atlantic Ocean, turned the ship over to the blockade, and um, became a national hero. And Smalls' story was told throughout the North in newspapers, and in August of 1862, he went to the White House and met with Abraham Lincoln. We don't know what they said to each other because there's no account from that time where it says this is what Smalls and Lincoln said, but I have to imagine that Lincoln said, can you tell me the story about how you stole this ship? Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, Smalls probably told him the story, and here's why it's important. Up to that point, Lincoln had opposed allowing black men to enlist, and part of it was political. He feared that there would be backlash among a racist white electorate in the North if you allow black men to fight, and part of it was that Lincoln feared that black men would be cowards on the battlefield. And there are quotes about Lincoln saying as much, but now he met a black man who had bravely saved himself and 14 or 15 other people, including his wife and kids and another family or two. Like, I mean, it's an incredible story what Robert Smalls did. And after meeting with Lincoln, the War Department gave Robert Smalls a letter that he took back to South Carolina that allowed for the recruitment of black soldiers. And the first and second South Carolina colored volunteers were raised in the fall of 1862 in South Carolina. And I think, again, this is Lincoln listening to one of his black visitors. A few months later, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, which allows for the recruitment of black soldiers nationwide. But just because that happens doesn't mean that black men will get full equality. And they do not get equal pay as white soldiers. They don't get the same quality of weapons and, and uniforms and that sort of thing. And the Confederacy threatens to enslave or execute any slave, any African-Americans caught on the battlefield, as well as their white officers. And so that becomes a, a major issue that the Lincoln administration has to deal with. And I have whole chapters of To Address You as My Friend, where black men are writing to Lincoln saying, when the bullets are flying on the battlefield, they don't discriminate on account of the color of our skin. And we are just as likely to be shot and killed as a white soldier is. We deserve equal pay. And they call on him to protect. And you see this in letters from black women as well, calling on Lincoln to protect un black Union soldiers from Confederate atrocities. And I mentioned Frederick Douglass earlier. Douglas goes to the White House in August of 1863 and pushes Lincoln on this issue. You've got to give black men equal pay and you got to protect them from the Confederate atrocities. And so these issues are are flying at Lincoln from the pens of black writers and also people like Douglas going to meet with him. And eventually Lincoln does sign into law laws that give black men equal pay as whites, but it takes a little bit of time. In the in his efforts, um, is Lincoln ahead of the rest of his administration? Is he behind them? Is he in the middle? I'm thinking of Lincoln's cabinet, for example. Where does Lincoln stand relative to the rest of his administration on this issue? It's a great question. Lincoln's cabinet was not of one mind. So there are some very conservative members of the cabinet who don't like Lincoln pushing forward on these kind of issues. And then there are more radical members of the cabinet who who want Lincoln to be pushing further. I'm thinking of someone like Salmon Chase there, the Secretary of the Treasury. 
Lincoln said to Charles Sumner once, so Charles Sumner was a radical Republican abolitionist from, from Massachusetts. Sumner was always pushing Lincoln. And at one point, Lincoln says to Sumner, I'm six months behind you. Like, just be a little patient. I need about six months to be able to get things to where I can do what I want to do. And I think that basically captures it, that, that Lincoln, Lincoln always was working to try to find ways to end slavery, but he believed it was important to do it in a way that was both politically attainable and constitutionally sound. And and coming up with those rationales took time. In August, I'm I wasn't going to do this, but I will. In August, I'm publishing a book called Shipwrecked, and it's a biography of a a slave trader. And it tells the story of how Lincoln destroyed the transatlantic slave trade during the Civil War. And I use a slave trader named Appleton Oak Smith to kind of his story as a lens to explain how Lincoln did that. Lincoln knew he had the constitutional authority to destroy the transatlantic slave trade. And in May of 1861, he told his interior secretary, the interior department is responsible to accomplish this. Go destroy the transatlantic slave trade. That was within his constitutional power, and he took it right away. And over the course of the next few years, Lincoln comes up with constitutional arguments to strike at slavery in other ways as well. And I'm thinking then what black men's response to Lincoln's increasing welcoming of black troops, for example, I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's from 1863. It's an address given by Frederick Douglass in Philadelphia, I think, addressed for the promotion of colored enlistments, mm-hmm. where he addresses some of those objections. He's talking to a black audience. And I think he says, essentially, yes, you're absolutely right. We should get equal pay. Yes, we demand this from the Lincoln administration. But if we don't get it, we still should serve. Yeah, for Douglas, I don't know if it was that speech or another one. There's another one that I've assigned in my classes at different points called Why Should the Colored Man Enlist? And he gives nine reasons for why they should enlist. And this is, he he's essentially saying, we got to claim this. This is our opportunity to make a name for ourselves, to show that we ought to be citizens, to prove that freedom and emancipation need to come as a result of this war and that we can we are the ones who can make that happen by enlisting and fighting absolutely um over the course of the war as you said as it gets toward the end black troops have proven themselves in battle um again memorialized in the movie glory wonderful uh depiction of that um Lincoln has now met with Black Americans. He's received a lot of letters from them, as you document in your book. He's now met with Frederick Douglass, what, at least twice? by Three times. Three yeah. times, right, by the end of the war. Um, he has now, at the very end, he speaks publicly in favor of Black um, citizenship, voting rights. Is, is this a shock to the people around Lincoln? Do they say, where'd this Abraham Lincoln come from? Or do many of them, by this time, do they say, yeah, this is the Abraham Lincoln that we know and we were expecting? Depends what people you mean. So I think, but overall, I think it was a shock. So for Confederates, they are reading about it in the newspapers, and they say, Lincoln is welcoming Black people into the White House. This justifies our whole rationale for seceding. He wants to bring about 
political and social equality among the races. Just last week, I was in a used bookstore down here, and I found a diary by a Confederate woman who wrote in her diary about reading in the newspapers about Lincoln meeting with Black people at the White House, and that was a position she took. And from her perspective, that meant that Lincoln wanted the word of the time was amalgamation, the interracial marriage and mixing of the races. I wish I'd had that quote from her when I when I published my books last yeah, year. Yeah, that's an amazing find at a used bookstore. I know it really was. Um, and then, uh, you know, when when black people would. So not only did Lincoln have office hours and people could go meet with him there, he would regularly have public receptions at the White House and. In February of 1864, at one of these evening receptions, two black doctors decided that they were going to go to a reception and they show up completely unannounced and they go in and Lincoln sees them and he eagerly goes up to shake their hands. And I know that word eagerly because one of the black doctors left an account of what this was like and that's the word he used to describe Lincoln coming up to them. So Lincoln eagerly shakes the first man's hand, and Mary Lincoln sees this happening and does not like it. And she sends her son Robert over to the president, and Robert says, are you really going to allow this in, uh, this innovation? And Lincoln turns to his son and says, why not? And Robert goes back over to his mother, and Lincoln shakes the first doctor's hand again and then shakes the second doctor's hand again. And then the two men go through the East Room of the White House and spend about a half hour kind of looking around, but the audience there forms a hollow circle around them and is just staring at them. And you have to imagine there were some people, you know, thinking about what are the reactions, like you asked, there are some people there who are going to be staring with awe and wonder. There are other people there who are going to be furious and angry that these two black men are allowed at this White House reception. It was actually this event that this Confederate woman was writing about because it made it into the newspapers. Wow. And um, you get Mary Lincoln's response. I mean, she's not happy with this sort of thing happening. But the most telling account I found was written by Lincoln's private secretary, William Stoddard, who watched this happen. And Stoddard said that this was not something people expected and he called it a practical assertion of negro negro citizenship for which few were prepared in other words these two guys were claiming the white house is the people's house it's our people's house too we have a right to be there we have a first amendment right to petition the government for a redress of grievances to go and and be seen and heard to shake the president's hand just like any white citizen has and it was an implicit claim for citizenship in doing that. And Stoddard kind of captures most white Americans weren't ready for that yet. But you know what's interesting is by the by the time Lincoln dies, they hold his funeral in the White House and they open up the doors. And the accounts of Lincoln's funeral there are that it was an interracial line of a long line of people who were there to mourn him. And when Lincoln's body traveled throughout the North, black and white Americans went to mourn and pay their respects. And that sort of interracial mixing would not last long into the presidency of Andrew Johnson. But in, in A House Built by Slaves, I kind of describe it as, this is what Lincoln would have wanted. 
he would have wanted black and white people standing together in line to pay their respects, being able to do that at the White House. And so I think it's a really beautiful picture of how quickly things had changed. And again, sadly, it doesn't last. But for that four-year period, there's a very real transformation in the White House. What about after Lincoln's death in popular memory? Um, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, African-Americans become a core part of the Republican Party. Uh, afterwards, in largely, of course, in connection to Abraham Lincoln, I think, and his memory. Um, what's the legacy of Lincoln's relationship with African Americans after his assassination? They point to him as, to quote Frederick Douglass, well, I, I won't quote Douglass. I mean, he has, he uses Lincoln, I think, extensively in the post-war period to try to claim Lincoln for Black Americans. So the example that really comes to mind, again, comes back to Black voting rights. In the spring of 1864, Lincoln met with several delegations of Black men who pushed for the right to vote. And after one of those meetings, Lincoln writes a private letter to the governor of Louisiana, arguing that Black men should that they should consider in Louisiana giving black men the right to vote as they are passing a new state constitution. And Lincoln says a beautiful line where he talks about doing so may help keep the jewel of liberty in the family of freedom. He says in some trying time to come, giving black men the right to vote may keep the jewel of liberty in the family of freedom. And that letter becomes public after Lincoln's death. And people like Frederick Douglass and other black leaders and other white allies of black voting rights, they they quote that letter to say Lincoln would support black suffrage now. We need to uphold that legacy of the martyred president. They point to the fact that in Lincoln's final speech, he calls for black voting rights. And they say, we've got to uphold that legacy. And unfortunately, they find in Andrew Johnson someone who is not at all open to the idea of, of black men voting. Johnson, in, in October of 64, as the Republican candidate for vice president, gives a speech in Nashville where he says to the black Tennesseans of Nashville, I will be your Moses. And when, when Johnson becomes president, many black Americans think he's going to be a Moses-type figure for them, but they very quickly realize that he's not going to be. And in February of 1866, a black delegation goes to the White House. It includes Frederick Douglass. It includes a number of other black men who had met with Lincoln. And Johnson is condescending and demeaning. And when they leave, he calls Frederick Douglass the N-word. I mean, it is a total 180 from where Lincoln had been. And so Lincoln's legacy is something they cling to when they're in this position that the new president is not going to be a Lincoln. To my mind, um, I think of that you mentioned Frederick Douglass there. My mind, I'm all I always think about uh, as a I don't want to say a final verdict on Lincoln, but a verdict from his time, an evaluation of his time. Frederick Douglass is very powerful 1876 oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln. Um, in that speech, it seems as though Douglass at one point says he was the white man's president, but on mm -hmm. the other hand, he says, um, you know, all honor to him. He acted as a statesman and moved as fast as he could. Your, what's your judgment, if I can ask that? Yeah. On, on Lincoln and his relationship with Black Americans. 
Well, let me say something about that speech, and I think that hopefully I can kind of capture the essence of your question as well. I think that speech is one of the most misunderstood pieces of of writing or public speaking from the 19th century. I remember reading a Washington Post article about it where it called it something like a 45-minute rapid-fire denunciation of Abraham Lincoln, something like that. My reading of that speech is that in the for the first half of it, Douglas is recounting his views as an abolitionist and critic of Lincoln during the war years. He recounts the, the ways that Lincoln disappointed him and other Black Americans, the ways that Lincoln didn't do quite what they wanted him to do, or was maybe condescending in certain ways, or too slow in certain ways. And that's where he says that Lincoln was the white man's president. And he says, we at best, he says, you are the children of Abraham Lincoln. We are at best only his stepchildren, children by adoption, children by force of circumstance. But then Douglas pivots and he uses the line that you alluded to about if you judge Lincoln as a statesman within the context of his time as a politician who was accountable to voters who could vote him out of office if they didn't like him, that he was swift and zealous and exactly what God need put in place to accomplish his, his goals. And so my reading of that speech is that Douglas is essentially conceding that his criticisms of Lincoln at the beginning of the war were wrong and that Lincoln's approach to the war had been the right one. And that if Lincoln had done what Douglas wanted too early in the war, that it wouldn't have been successful. If Lincoln had declared emancipation or black equality or black voting rights in 1861, he would have lost the border states, the Civil War would have been over, the South would have won, slavery would have been kept intact, and the whole Union would have been destroyed. And I think Douglas came to realize that Lincoln's approach, while it hadn't always been the one that he wanted, was the one that worked. And and Douglas was conceding that. Now, um, your question about Lincoln and African Americans, I think, I think that a very real relationship developed between Lincoln and Black Americans. There's a great historian, a Black historian in the mid-20th century named Benjamin Quarles. And he wrote a book called Lincoln and the Negro. And one of his really interesting and important points is that for Black Americans in the 19th century, they associated their politics with a person. And during the Civil War, that person was Abraham Lincoln. And I think, I think that Black people saw in Lincoln someone who was really concerned with what concerned them. And so for the first time in American history, they felt like they could write to a president and he would actually care. And they felt like they could meet with the president and tell him what was on their minds. Fascinating. That's uh, what an insightful and interesting conversation. Jonathan White, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. To our listeners, don't forget Jonathan's wonderful books to address you as my friend, African-Americans, Letters to Abraham Lincoln, and A House Built by Slaves. John, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.